Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. The Gospel of Matthew is distinct in this respect. It was written primarily for the Jews. It covers a lot of information that some of the other um, uh, Gospels do not. Uh, the, the comparison would be Luke's Gospel, which was written primarily for the Gentiles. But the, the back story, the background of Matthew's Gospel, he starts off talking about Jesus' lineage. He then uh, talks about Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan River, the time that he spent in the wilderness. Matthew's the one that gives us the details about the temptation that he endured after he'd fasted for 40 days. And then in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us about Jesus calling his disciples and begin, uh, hit the beginning of him creating the ministry team that he walked around and, and uh, was a part of for three years. In verse 23, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it then tells us, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. Now skip with me over to chapter 8. Chapters 5, 6, and 7 are primarily the... Uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And again, Matthew gives us more information about that, more detail about that than any of the other gospel writers. But then it tells us that uh, in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, when he was come down from the mountain, that mountain was uh, where he delivered the Sermon on the Mount to them. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. One of the things that, that strikes me as interesting, we know that John, in concluding his gospel account, which was written much, much, much later than any of the other three accounts, John said if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, the world itself couldn't contain the books. Well, that would mean then that healing the sick, which was such a great part of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' ministry is identified in these verses that we just read, others as well, but primarily it identifies him teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing sick, the sick everywhere that he went, healing every manner of sickness and disease. So when Matthew gives us that account, one of the first things the Holy Ghost impresses upon him to write and to record and to leave for us, the gospel writers certainly didn't have any idea that the letters that they were writing would have such a far-reaching impact or would last throughout time. There'd be no way that they would know that other than by the, uh, the revelation of the Holy Ghost. And we don't know that, that the Holy Ghost did reveal that to them, so it would be wrong in my thinking to make the assumption that they would think or know that. But here's the Holy Ghost impressing Matthew to recount the story of the leper almost right out of the gate. Jesus, uh, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, as we read in chapter 4. Then he ministered in Syria, the area that uh, was known in that day as Syria. He's ministered in Decapolis. He's ministered in Judea. We don't know how much time that took. We don't know how much time that those verses, those two verses uh, encompass. It could have been a matter of months, it could have been shorter than that. We really don't have any way to know. But the Holy Spirit impressed Matthew to recount and to include as one of the earlier events that took place in Jesus' ministry what may be the greatest um, that may be the most needful of all of Jesus' healings. And it's a guy that had an idea that was foreign to the people of that day, very common to the people of our day. But notice the problem the leper has. Leprosy was the ultimate in disease. It represented the worst of the worst of any and every disease that was uh, operating in the earth in that day. It was the incurable condition. 
more so than anything else. It was the, the disease that everybody feared more than anything else. And the leper comes to Jesus in verse 2 and worships him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He knows that Jesus can. He knows enough about what he's heard from Jesus or heard about Jesus to know that Jesus is healing every manner of sickness and every manner of disease among the people. But he doesn't know if it belongs to him. Now, folks, I would submit to you that this is the number one position that many in the church world today are in relative to healing the sick or the healing power of God. You're not going to find any Christian anywhere that says God can't heal the sick. There's no debate about that. There's no discrepancy. There's, there's no controversy whatsoever on whether or not God can heal. This man knows that. He just doesn't know what God's will is for him. Folks, in, in the years that we've been pastoring the church and the years before that that we were working with Brother Hagen in ministering to the sick and talking to the sick, the number one roadblock, the number one hindrance among the people of God is whether or not it's God's will to heal them. They're in exactly the same boat. And this is the situation, the only one of anybody that came to Jesus' ministry. And again, I'll bring your attention to what John said. If everything Jesus said and did was written down, the world couldn't contain the books. But we have no other record of somebody questioning the will of God to heal other than this guy. Jesus answers him, not with a an account of the history of the Jews not by trying to teach him some doctrinal truth Jesus put forth, puts forth his hand and touches him saying I will be thou clean and immediately his leprosy was cleansed and Jesus said unto him see that thou tell no man but go your way show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them Mark and, John, uh, Mark and Luke both recount this story of the leper coming, believing that God can, believing God, in God's ability to heal, but not knowing his will to heal. And in both of those accounts, it says Jesus moved immediately to touch him because he was moved with compassion. Jesus moved instantly, immediately, saying, I will. Now, folks, as we've talked so many times before, as we've referred to, God never changes. God said of himself, I am God, I change not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he never changes. And that means also that the will of God cannot change. And the Holy Ghost gives us one account that is supposed to stand for all of us for all time. My point is simply that it didn't take three or four different cases of people that were sick or diseased coming to Jesus and saying, are you willing to heal me too? We have one example, and that's this leper. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus moves immediately and touches him. He doesn't want him to question the will of God concerning healing from sickness and disease for one more second than is necessary. However long this guy's been struggling with it, we don't know his age. We don't know how long he's been a leper. We don't know the, the progression or the, uh, the state of leprosy that he has. We don't know if he's been newly infected with the leprous disease. What is it, germ, bacteria? I'm not sure what causes it. It may be that he hasn't had it for long. It may be that he's had it for so long that some of his body has been eaten away by the disease. We don't know. But one thing we know for sure is that God wanted to get this out of the way right off the bat. He wanted to get this understanding to the people. And those people include me and you. He wanted everybody to know and everybody to understand 
that his will is always to heal the sick. Matthew 8 tells us the story then about the centurion that exhibits great faith. His faith is not in Jesus coming to touch his servant, but his faith is in Jesus' words. He understands that when Jesus speaks, he's exercising authority over sickness and disease. Now, you can't exercise authority over sickness and disease unless you have authority over sickness and disease. And Matthew recounts that by the baptism by John in the Jordan River. And then following that, I want you to pick up the story with me in verse 16. When the evening was come, they brought unto Jesus many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Please notice that phrase, and healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4 primarily. Verse 4 and 5 both apply. But it's primarily a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. Which says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The word griefs and sorrows are the word sicknesses and pains as it's translated other places in the Old Testament. Why the translators didn't add that, why they didn't translate it consistently with the other places that they use these words, I don't really have an answer. I suspect that it was beyond their Christian beliefs where healing from sickness and disease were concerned. We've said it so many times, any translation depends on two things. One is the translator's knowledge of the, of the language. The King James translation was finished, completed in 1611 after having been commissioned by King James of England seven years earlier in 1604. And there were 50 of these religious leaders that worked together on the, the uh, translation, the King James translation. So the two elements, the two primary factors in any translation is one, the translator's knowledge of the language that's being translated from, but then secondly, their knowledge and understanding of the character of God. See, if the translators didn't believe that Jesus healed the sick or God still healed the sick in their day, just as it was in Jesus' time here on the earth, then any time they're facing a, um, a question of whether the Greek or the Hebrew words should be translated one way or another way, and particularly the Hebrew, the Greek language is a lot better than the Hebrew when it comes to transmitting God's thoughts and so forth, but the Hebrew language can mean two opposite extremes. For example, there's a scripture in Isaiah 45 that says, I create the darkness. I do all these things. Well, the word create can mean either to make or to cut down like a tree. And the Hebrew language is full of words like that. It's full of words that can mean one thing or another, and the two things that it could mean are diametrically opposed, polar opposites one to another. Well, then that means it's going to be left up to the translators to identify the context which would give them the correct translation. So is the Bible saying that God created darkness or is, he saying that he, is it saying that he made the darkness or is it saying that he cuts down the darkness like cut down a tree? Well, he said he looked into the darkness and said, let there be light. So by God's actions, in the creation of the earth. We see that the translators should have translated it, I cut down the darkness. But they can only go with what they know. I get kind of hard on them sometimes, and I, I guess I should temper that a little bit, because I certainly wouldn't have been in a position to translate anything. I don't know anything about languages. I do know something about the character and the nature of God, but that wouldn't have been very helpful in the situation that they were in and the things that they were looking for. They were under a lot of pressure because King James was really looking for a translation of the Bible that would justify his autonomy from the Roman Catholic Church and, uh, and the hierarchy, the Pope and so forth, the people that were in Rome. So the translators were under great pressure not only to produce a good translation 
but not to anger the king by what they say that it says. So they had a monumental task in front of them, and I should cut them some slack. But it still doesn't change the truth. The truth is that in many places, in many, uh, many parts of the translation, the translators went completely away from the display of the power of God when they had the opportunity to do so. Here in this verse that we just read, he healed all that were sick. The multitudes came to him in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 8. But then notice the next thing it says, that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. What Isaiah said, and again Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Now, folks, there's a lot of words that we could use and, and examples that we could show you. Times where the Bible says Jesus fulfilled something of the Old Testament. And the fulfillment is a continuous type of thing. Once Jesus came to the earth, the fulfillment of these things, the fulfillment of every prophecy about the Messiah in the Old Testament, every one of them are in the beginning stages of being fulfilled because Jesus is going to be faithful and carry out the work of God on the earth. So we could show that from many examples. As far as God was concerned, as far as the history of mankind was concerned, once Jesus came to the earth to do the will of God, everything was already accomplished because he's not going to turn away. The Bible says that the faithfulness of Jesus were the reins that held him in check. We know even on the cross, Jesus made mention that he could call 12 legions of angels and deliver him from the cross. Why didn't he? Because his faithfulness to fulfill God's plan of redemption was the only thing that made a difference to him. It's the only thing that mattered. But here, if the Holy Ghost inspired Matthew to write these words, particularly in verse 17, 16 and 17, that means something had to be fulfilled in what Jesus was doing at the moment. Well, what was fulfilled? Certainly not the payment, the eternal payment for sickness and disease. The Bible goes on to say in Isaiah 53, in the next verse, verse 5, it says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The only difference between transgressions and iniquities there, they're both elements of sin. One has to do with personal sin. The other has to do with Adam's original sin. Jesus paid the price not only for what Adam did that brought sin and death into the world, but he paid for what you and I did even though we weren't born and able to do it yet. He covered all of sin for all time. So he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we were healed. Well, in Matthew 8, he hadn't taken any stripes on him. So that part can't be what's fulfilled. What did he fulfill? Well, remember what it says. Let's read it again in verse 17. So that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bear our sicknesses. What Jesus is fulfilling at this point in time in Matthew, the account that Matthew gives us at the end of the 8th chapter, what Jesus is fulfilling is who is our. Who is our? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. It's identifying who makes up the hour, O-U-R, in Isaiah's prophecy. Well, what fulfills that? What did he do to fulfill? Isaiah saying that he took all of our sickness just as he took all of our sin. The phrase, the last phrase in verse 16 is what brought about the fulfillment of Isaiah, that part of Isaiah's prophecy. He healed all that were sick. See, the Bible, the Holy Ghost, through the Word, is trying to show us that if Jesus hadn't healed everybody, if he had not healed all that came to him, all that were sick, then some of us, many of us, all of us even, could challenge his justice and say, God, you are better to them than you are to us. A lot of people have the idea that things were different in Jesus' ministry than they are today. But Jesus said to his disciples to do the same work that he did and then even do greater works. Well, that would have to include healing works, wouldn't it? 
Is Jesus saying to his disciples, I want you to do the same works as I did, everything except that healing stuff? Folks, that healing stuff is what brought the multitudes to Jesus. Healing has always been the dinner belt that brings people to the table to find out what Jesus has done for them. So here where it says Jesus healed all that were sick, it was necessary for all to be healed to fulfill what Isaiah said. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. See, if the Bible had just said he healed many, then there was no way that that could have been connected to or attached to the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. It was necessary for all to be healed to show whose sicknesses and whose diseases Jesus would take upon himself. He healed all that were sick. To fulfill what Isaiah said. Himself took our infirmities. And bare our sickness. And with his stripes were healed. Now turn with me over to Mark chapter 5. We've seen examples here. Both in the beginning of the chapter when the leper doesn't know if Jesus will heal him. He knows he can, but he doesn't know if Jesus will. In other words, he doesn't know if the Messiah's work is going to cover him too. And that's the real fight, the real struggle that's in the modern day church. Because so many people have sat in certain churches, so many churches, and been told one thing after another that doesn't belong to us, have had explanations given for why things are different now in our day than they were when Jesus was here on the earth or when God prophesied his coming. But everything about what Jesus said identifies again and again and again that God hadn't changed on the position of healing. Jesus hasn't changed on the position of healing. God's power is not wanting concerning healing from sickness and disease any more in our day than it was in Jesus' day. Granted, that power is not on display like it was. But that doesn't mean God's withheld his part. Mark chapter 5, verse 25. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said... If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood, her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, verse 34, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Now, folks, the Bible says that the multitudes were thronging Jesus. That means as many people as can get close enough to Jesus to touch him, to reach their hand out and make contact with him in some way or another are doing just that. It implies that the crowd is jostling Jesus and the disciples as they're trying to make their way to Jairus' house. And the only thing that could possibly cause that from what we see and read about the story is people on every side trying to push, scramble, some way or another, get close enough to Jesus to put their hands on him. And folks, you've got to realize that a number of these people are being successful at it. In other words, the crowd, the multitudes, are successfully making contact with Jesus. When Jesus says, who touched me? Or who touched my clothes? The disciples look around and say, what do you mean by that? Everybody's touching you. Now, nobody else that touched Jesus got anything except this one woman. Jesus identifies what the difference is in the way they touched him. The others touched him in the way she touched him. He said, daughter, your faith made you whole. So even though Jesus had unlimited power because he was anointed of the Holy Ghost, John said that he had the Spirit without measure. 
John said Jesus had the spirit without measure. That means there is no other operation of the Holy Ghost that bypasses what's on Jesus. He had certainly enough power to heal that crowd. He's been healing multitudes and crowds before then already. Even as Matthew 4, 23 and 24 tells us. So it wasn't a matter of how much power is available. The issue is how do you tap into the power? This woman tapped into the power of God, the healing power of God after doctors had given up on her, after she was without any hope whatsoever from mankind. She's done everything. She's tried everything. She spent her money on trying to get better. I don't blame her for that, do you? <coughs> People that are facing serious conditions will do everything, anything and everything they can to get rid of them. It's always kind of amused me how so much of the church world say that God puts sickness on his children to teach them something. But just as soon as they say that God is trying to teach them through sickness and disease, they'll go to every doctor they can and spend every amount of money available to try to get rid of what God's trying to teach them. See, if sickness was from God for any reason, whether it's him trying to teach us something or not, if sickness is from God, we shouldn't try to get away from it. We shouldn't try to be free from sickness and disease. We should ask God for a double portion or a double measure of that sickness and disease so that we can really grow in him. Now, I know that sounds absurd, but that is the logical conclusion to what so many people claim about God's purpose in sickness and disease. This woman, what did she know? Well, she had to have heard that people were healed by touching his clothes. And there are Three different places in Scripture where it tells us that, uh, that that was a means or a method of healing where people obtain healing from their sickness or disease or ailment in the middle of a big crowd. She had to have heard. She wouldn't have faith to touch his garment, to receive healing by touching, touching his garment if she was looking for him to, or if she had heard about him laying hands on the sick. <coughs> Excuse me. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So she had to have faith or she had to obtain faith to touch his garment by hearing that other people were healed doing the same thing. She's not looking for Jesus to be the initiator. She's not looking for Jesus to be the one that lays hands on her. She's not looking to tell her story to him. The reason for that most probably is because she was considered just as unclean with the issue of blood as if she had leprosy. And the rule, because leprosy was such a contagious disease, and the, uh, the Old Testament speaks of the issues of blood being contagious in the same way. And so anybody that had leprosy or had the condition that she had or anything like that were required by the law of Moses to announce their presence so that everybody could avoid them. So the idea that she could come to Jesus in the middle of the crowd and say, I'm not supposed to be here because I'm highly contagious, but Jesus, I wanted to tell you about my situation. That wasn't even a consideration for her. She knew she was breaking the laws of man by coming into the crowd. And so her intent must have been just to reach, and reach out and take hold of Jesus' garment, get her healing, and then slip out the back of the multitude. And it almost worked. It almost worked. Jesus knew that somebody had drawn from the power that was upon him. The anointing of the Holy Ghost to heal the sick. He knew that power had gone out of him. She felt the power go into her. And Jesus knows that with everybody that's touching him, somebody. Not many. Not even a few. Somebody touched him in such a way that drew on that power. Now, Jesus knows what everybody else doesn't know. He knows that it has to be faith that would take hold of the power. You remember when he was in his own hometown of Nazareth, according to Luke chapter 4 and, Matthew ch and uh, Mark chapter 6. It says that Jesus identified that he was anointed of the Holy Ghost to heal, sick, heal sickness and disease, to heal the sick. They didn't accept that. And remember, he marveled at their unbelief. And it says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, 
And he could there, in, in his own hometown of Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty work. That means he didn't have any cripples getting up out of wheelchairs or off of beds. He didn't have anybody with, that was blind receive their sight. He didn't have any miracles or, or great miracles or spectacular things that happened like he had already had in Capernaum. And he marveled at their unbelief. He tried to counteract it by going around their cities and villages teaching. He's trying to inspire them to believe. But he couldn't, even though he had a spirit without measure, even though God sent him there to do it. And folks, this is so, so, so important. It was the will of God to heal the people in Nazareth, the sick in Nazareth, just like it was the will of God to heal people everywhere else Jesus went where he healed them all. God is no respecter of persons, so what he wants for one, he has to want for all. So God wanted him to heal the sick in Nazareth, but he couldn't. Again, it doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says that he could not. He lacked the ability to heal the sick because of the unbelief of the town. He marvels at the reality of them giving up the healing anointing that he was sent to bestow upon the people of the town. He marvels at their refusal to believe, even though they've heard about the miracles and the great things that he did in Capernaum. Remember, he said, I know what you're going to say to me. You're going to say, physician, heal thyself. The things that we've heard of you from Capernaum do also here in your hometown. And he marvels at their refusal to believe. Again, like I said, he tries to counteract it. He begins teaching in their villages and towns in the synagogues. But it never really tells us. The Bible really never tells us anything about what happened in Nazareth, whether they ever developed any faith in, in Jesus being the Messiah or not. I have to read into that that since it doesn't tell us that that was the end result, it most probably wasn't the end result. I'm inclined to think that they, did, they disbelieved or refused to believe in him for all the time that he was here on the earth. But this woman, as I said, is not looking for an audience with Jesus. That would just increase the risk of her being found out. But of all the people that are touching Jesus, Jesus recognizes that one and only one touched him in faith. One and only one received the, the healing anointing, the healing power of God that was upon him to change her situation. Now, folks, everybody in that crowd could have reached out and touch, touched him in faith. They had to have heard something about him. Why are they trying to touch him if they haven't heard of his healing miracles and his power? What are they touching him for? If not to try to take hold of the power of God to heal them too. I can't believe in any sense whatsoever that the woman with issue of blood is the only sick person in that crowd. If she is, it's the first crowd that we know of yet that Jesus had with only one sick person. So they've heard something, but whatever it was, they didn't mix faith with what they heard. And so they were unable to take hold of the healing power that God sent Jesus to bestow on them. Was it the will of God for other sick people in that crowd to be healed? Absolutely. Why was she the only one? Because she's the only one that reached out in faith and took hold of it. She knew. Get this now. She knew that the healing power of God belonged to her. How'd she know? Maybe new is the wrong way to, to say it. Maybe it's the wrong word to use. But there's something about her hearing Jesus, about Jesus' exploits to destroy the sickness and disease that's holding people bound. There's something about what she heard of the people that touched the hem of his garment. There's something about what she heard that caused her to take it personally. That caused her to say, well, if they can be healed, then I can be too. And it doesn't seem to be a common position. Because if it was a common position, there would have been more people in that 
multitude, that crowd that, to get their healing, wouldn't it? Folks, this is one of the greatest roadblocks to healing. We know that God wants people to be well. He sent Jesus to prove that. Jesus, one of Jesus' main purposes here on the earth was to reveal the Father to us. Jesus said himself to his disciples, he that's seen me has seen the Father. Well, if seeing Jesus is the same as seeing the Father, then how many people did Jesus turn away that came to him for, for healing from sickness and disease? Is there anybody that he turned away? Even the situations where people came individually and weren't in faith, he tweaked their faith enough to the point where they could receive. You remember that's what happened in Mark chapter 9, where the father brings his son to the disciples, hoping to find Jesus, but Jesus uh, is not there. He's still coming back from the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter and John, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus identifies when the disciples could not minister healing or deliver this little boy from the work of the devil. Jesus knows the only thing that keeps it from working is unbelief. So he began to talk to the Father about faith. Jesus says, it's not just a matter of what I can do. It's a matter of what you can believe. See, the Father went back to the power of God. He thought, maybe that's the problem. So he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have mercy on us and help us. And Jesus rejects that instantly. He throws it right back in the Father's face. He says, it's not a matter of what I can do. It's a matter of what you can believe. And the father takes a baby step and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that in itself, as poor a demonstration or, or display of faith as that is, it was sufficient for God to work with it to deliver that little boy, to deliver his son. Why did the woman with issue of blood get results when nobody else could? I say nobody else, and I'm talking about the people that made up the rest of the crowd. And the multitude was thronging them. It's called a multitude. I don't know how big a multitude is, but it seems like a pretty big crowd to me. There's a lot of other words that could have been used other than multitude. So maybe this was hundreds of people. Maybe it was thousands of people. Jesus didn't have to work very hard to get a crowd of 5,000 people to feed with five loaves and two fishes. It doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility that if there were 5,000 people in the sermon, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, there could easily have been 5,000 people that are trailing Jesus down the road too. But out of all those people, whatever number you want to imagine or estimate it to be, out of all those people, there was one that reached out in faith. There was one person that was willing to take the power of God and apply it to themselves. One person that heard that God was healing other people, so that means he will heal me too. And so all that's left is for her to act out her faith. All that's left is for her to get to Jesus and touch the hem of his garment. And she does. And that triggers the power of God. Now, folks, think about the implications here. The woman with the issue of blood did everything necessary to obtain her healing even before she went to Jesus in the crowd. She's believing, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. So all that's left for her is find where Jesus is and get close enough to touch him, touch the hem of his garment. Now, folks, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how all this works. But it seems to me that somebody's had an issue of blood, a continuous flow of blood in their body or from their body for 12 years. They're not going to be the strongest people in town. It's not like she's going for blood transfusions every couple of weeks. The issue of blood that she had is draining her of, of strength and stamina day by day by day by day. So touching Jesus' garment and getting close enough, elbowing people out of the way, think after Christmas sales at the mall. Pushing, shoving, 
keeping herself from being knocked down and working her way to where Jesus was, pushing through the crowd enough to get close enough to touch the hem of his garment. Can you see the determination in this woman? Can you see the unwillingness she has to be denied? It's because she's already taken hold of something by faith. It's because she's already determined that this healing power that's on Jesus, that Jesus says is on him, that's what he preached in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to heal the brokenhearted. This power, this anointing of God that's on him to heal the sick, to heal every manner of sickness and every manner of disease, is something she will not be denied from. I wonder if everything on that day that she touched Jesus went just the way she planned. Well, if it did, it'd be the first time in history that the devil ever left anybody else alone. I wonder if she had any setbacks during that day. Was she waiting for Jesus when he got up in the morning? Was she waiting for Jesus standing right there when Jesus is approached by, J by Jairus and says that he'll go to Jairus' house? Where is she in all of this? Is she on the outskirts of town? Is she far away perhaps because she can't come in town according to the law of Moses without identifying herself? I wonder what obstacles she had to overcome. Well, we've all already talked about the lack of physical strength that she might have had. I wonder if there was anything else. Well, whatever there might have been, she decides this is mine and this is the most important thing in the world for me and to me so I'm going to get to where he is I can imagine this playing like a movie in my mind I can see her on several occasions getting so close to where she is and then getting knocked out of the way so she starts again tries to push through the other crowd the ones that have pushed her out of the way Finally, she gets to it. Finally, she reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus immediately says, who touched me? Now, folks, think about that, too. If Jesus immediately said, who touched me, and she's not standing right behind him, then what happened? Could it be that she was knocked out of the way just as soon as she touched Jesus? Could it be that the crowd is still trying to hold on to him, and he's just made it easy for them? by stopping in the procession. Jesus looked around to see who, who had done it. He looked around to see who had pulled on the power, the healing power of God from him. And he couldn't find her on his own. But the woman fearing and trembling. What's she afraid of? If she had been in the midst of the crowd with the issue of blood before she was healed, the law of Moses said that she should be stoned. But she doesn't have the issue of blood anymore. She feels in her body that she's healed of that plague. So that's not a concern of hers. What's she afraid of? The woman, fearing and trembling, fell down before him and told him all the truth. What's she afraid of? I can't see her being afraid of being discovered Maybe before the healing took place, but not afterwards. Why is she in fear and trembling? Because she took hold of something that she initiated based on what she had heard of Jesus. I imagine she's wondering if Jesus is going to be mad at her for taking hold of the healing power of God that he would probably have used on Jairus' daughter. But whatever it was, even in that, she overcomes her fears. The strength of this woman, folks, is something to be admired. So she fell down before him, fearing and trembling. She falls down before him and tells him all the truth. 
And Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Wonder what Jesus' attitude about it was. You think Jesus was upset because somebody took hold of, by faith, took hold of what she did? Well, he has his opportunity to admonish her or reprimand her, and he doesn't. So that must not be it. I wonder if Jesus was happy that somebody took hold. Out of all the crowd, of all the number of people that were there, she's the only one that got anything when she touched him. I would imagine that Jesus is marveling that she's the only one that got anything. Because everybody else in that crowd had the same opportunity that she had. They had to have heard of Jesus healing the sick. Else why are they trying to touch him? But nobody else takes it personally. Nobody else takes hold of it personally. Not one other person. I determined a long time ago that if I'm the only one, I still will take hold of it for myself. How about you? Everybody in that crowd could have. Now notice what she did. We'll close with this, but notice what she did. She began to say, when she heard of Jesus, had to have heard of his healing the sick, she began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. Brother Hagin used to tell people to school themselves into faith. This was something that happened in the, the earlier days of his ministry before I started working with him. But in meetings that he would hold in churches, oftentimes there'd be people that would come and have hands laid on them maybe early in the week or the number of weeks that the, the uh, meetings went. And they wouldn't receive anything. And they'd come back to Brother Hagin later and say, you laid hands on me, but nothing happened. And so he would always tell them what to do. He always shared with them and told them to school themselves into faith. To start saying, the next time Brother Hagin lays hands on me, I'll receive my healing. He referred them back to Matthew chapter 5. The woman with the issue of blood, the story we've just been talking about. And he told them, just like she began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. He instructed her, them, to say, start saying, the next time Brother Hagin lays hands on me, I'll be healed. And time after time after time, after I started working with him, and we were holding mostly um, convention center type meetings, rather than in, in the churches. There were still a couple of churches we went to, but for the most part, they were neutral places, convention center halls and stuff like that. But people would come back to the bookstore and tell us the same thing that they used to tell Brother Hagin. He laid hands on me last night, but I didn't get anything. So we, having learned from him, told them to do the same stuff that he had told the people in the past. Start saying, the next time he lays hands on me, I'll be healed. The next time he lays hands on me, I'll be healed. The next time he lays hands on me, I'll be healed. And folks, we saw dozens of people, one after another, that would do that for a couple of days and come back and be so excited because of the healing that they received. We had a couple of people question us, just like Brother Hagin had people that would question him. We learned from him, so we told them, our people, the same thing that he told the other people. Sometimes people would say, but how can I be sure? How can I be sure that the next time you lay hands on me, I'll be healed? And Brother Hagin would always tell him, look, it doesn't matter what you think about it. It doesn't matter what it makes you feel like. Just start saying, the next time Brother Hagin lays hands on me, I'll be healed. And folks, it worked every time. If you can get people to start saying what's going to happen, if you can get, start, get people to start saying that they received the blessing of God, the healing power of God. It works in every area. We were just dealing with people in the area of sickness and disease or healing from sickness and disease. Just start saying. Just start saying. Because it's always your faith that takes hold. A lot of people 
are looking for something to happen and then they'll believe. But it never works like that. It always works the other way around. So whatever you're believing for, whatever you want from God, start saying it now. That's what Abraham did. Abraham became an imitator of God who, calls the, who quickens the dead and calls things that be not as though they were. Abraham began to speak faith into his body, speak life to his body. He began to call his body well and able to produce a child, no matter what the years on the calendar said, no matter how old he was. He began to say, and it turned everything around for him. It'll turn everything around for you and me too. Because our faith can make us whole. If the, woman, if the woman with the issue of blood's faith could make her whole, then your faith can make you whole. My faith can make me whole. Faith never changes. Neither is the faithful God that keeps his word. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we thank you for the truth of the word. We thank you that you sent your word and healed us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to take hold of the blessing of God, the healing power of God by faith. So we begin to say, we begin to call things that be not as though they were. We call our bodies healed. We call our bodies well. We thank you, Father, that Jesus paid the price to heal all that were sick, to heal all of us that are sick today. We claim that right because your word never lies. Your word gives us the information that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. Therefore, we say that we're healed. We say that sickness and disease is leaving our body. It cannot stay. It cannot remain in our flesh because Jesus already paid the price for it. Thank you, Father, that your word is true and our words come to pass. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you, folks. Thank you for being with us.